Hello, my name's Tom Walker. Welcome to the Christmas edition of That'll Be The Day. In this festive podcast, I'm going to be chatting to a well-known visually impaired storyteller. But before we hear from Giles Abbott, if you like the sound of the music at the start of this podcast, it's a track called That'll Be The Day by the Liverpool band The Vow. And as well as featuring a track by The Vow at the end of this podcast... I'll also include one of Giles' Christmas stories. That'll be the day Your open invitation comes my way I first met Giles some 23 years ago when I was recording a feature for the In Touch programme on his work as a storyteller. On that particular day, Giles was working with a group of blind and partially sighted school children who were spellbound by him and his stories. I too was fascinated by Giles and I'm pleased to say we've stayed in touch ever since. So if you're looking for a break from the family or Christmas television, sit back and enjoy half an hour in the company of Giles Abbott. Now my guest uh, Giles Abbott is with me. We've had quite a day, I won't bore you with the details on that, but we are now in a coffee shop, if you can hear some talking in the background, and I think I can also hear some Christmas music, but as it's December, we won't mind too much. Giles, before we do anything else, what does Christmas mean to you? Christmas means to me, I don't know, it's the time in the midwinter when, because it's cold and it's dark, we light fires and flames and make things look beautiful to get us through the that darkest time of the year. I'll ask you later how you're going to celebrate, but uh, can we go back to the beginning? Because you're a storyteller. Um, that's how I first met you um, some years ago now. Uh, how did you get started as a storyteller? I got started in storytelling after my eyesight went when I was 25 years old. I lost... Well, most, most if not nearly all of my central vision. And I suddenly couldn't read books anymore. And couldn't do the work I used to do in bookshops or anything like that. And I was living in West Yorkshire at the time, beautiful, beautiful valley called Calderdale. And uh, after a year of serious illness, I was going out a little bit, and somebody that my wife knew said that in Hebden Bridge in a pub called the, Sh- the Stubbing Wharf there was a meeting of some people called the Shaggy Dog Storytellers and we went down and the host kept saying how the, the last 45 minutes was an open spot anyone who wanted to could have a go to my absolute shock when the open spot came my wife got up and well she wasn't my wife then she was my girlfriend then she got up and told a story in the open spot and she told it beautifully and I'd been thinking all the way through listening to local listening to people tell stories wow I could do this how can I do this I can get Suze to read me a book about that'll be hard she's dyslexic but she'll do it and I needed to read a book to know how to tell a story but then Suze just got up and did it and it showed me because the reason she could tell the story she told that night was because the day before I told it to her because the day before her mother had told it to me. And I thought, that's how you tell a story. You've heard it, you know it, just get up and do it. So the following month, that's what I did. And it went from there. 
You said your sight started to deteriorate quite significantly at the age of 25. Um, I'm guessing you graduated, what, about the age of 21, 22. So when you were fully sighted, what, was your, what were you doing work-wise? Nothing very productive. I, I had graduated when I was 21, and I wasn't particularly prepared for the business of finding work. I was, I was immature. Uh, I hadn't worked out what I wanted. I was very good at knowing what I didn't want to do. I can write. I've always been good with language, so I thought, oh, well, I guess it would be media then. And I tried to do well, what you do so well. I tried to do journalism, but I just wasn't. I wasn't tough enough, actually. I wasn't incisive enough. I wasn't clear enough. Um, I spent a long time trying to get work in journalism, but it made me very unhappy because it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, so I got jobs in bookshops whilst I tried to work out what, if anything, was I supposed to be doing. So in some ways, loss of sight was an amazing gift because it gave me time. Also, it limited my options. Um, so I had to choose what I could do. And by complete good fortune, it turns out that I could tell stories and I love it. You worked in a bookshop. You did English at university. Correct. So one might reasonably conclude that books were really important to you. They were. And you've mentioned um, the, the issues you had there. I mean, how did you cope not having that easy access to the printed word? It was tough. Um, I didn't have any access to the printed word. I still don't. Um, but we used the RNIB's talking book service, which was wonderful because my wife is dyslexic and so for her it's much easier to hear the words and see them. So we had a little private book club of two. We'd listen and discuss and that was gorgeous. And then um, that worked well for a while. Nowadays I can read books on my smartphone if I make the letters enormous and hold it to my nose. But it's not comfortable. It's never, you know, when I used to read books when I was a kid I'd forget the book I was holding. I was just in the world of the story. I can read from a smartphone, but I find it very difficult to make the medium disappear. That love of reading is something, I guess, although you, you aren't able to do it now, it's, I guess it's something that you probably wish you still could. But it became a love of listening. And to this day, one of my happiest places is to be in a good storytelling club where there might be a good featured storyteller or tellers and then a really good open spot and I'm just hearing stories I've not heard before or I'll hear a story I know but I've never heard it told like that before and that makes me very happy. The difficulty, of course, is during the pandemic is um, storytelling clubs have not been meeting and storytelling clubs were most times run by older people who after three years of pandemic I've kind of figured that nah, it takes a lot of effort and courage and input to run a storytelling club and so at the moment storytelling clubs aren't particularly happening. Let's go back. Well they are but there aren't as many of them. Let's go back, I mean, I'm not structuring this interview very well but we'll, we'll go back to where we should, have, uh, we should have carried on from really but it's a podcast so we can do what we want really. We can. We can do whatever we want. We um, can. Absolutely. Take your jacket off. I can off, change well. my accent in the middle of the, of the podcast and sound like a different person. Well you're going back to where I wanted to take you back to, Hebden Bridge there. Ah. So you got up and, and had a go did you? Yeah, the following month I got up and had a go and the theme of the stories that evening was bawdy tales, you know, naughty, mucky stories. And somebody had told me a mucky joke a couple of days before and I just 
stood up in front of the audience and said, I, I've never done this before, this is my first time, be gentle with me. And of course they sniggered. And well, that's good, I've got them, now just don't drop them. And I just improvised and turned that three minute joke into a 10 minute story. And the response was very, very enthusiastic. How daunting was that for you? Because uh, I've spoken to quite a few performers, musicians, um, comedians as well, and they don't get that visual buzz from the audience. So what do you rely on? No, I can see where the audience is. I see fuzzy coloured shapes, but I can hear their response, which means that sometimes I, rely, or I, I used to rely too much on one-liners, because if the audience comes back with a quick snap of laughter, then I know they're with me. But I've learned, because I had to, how to listen to the quality of silence. And if the room is absolutely motionless, the silence is at such a pitch that I can tell they're really in the story. Um, that stuff you have to learn on the job. That took longer. That took longer. Um, as to it being daunting, no, I've never found it daunting to stand up and, and tell a story because I've kind of been doing it all my life. My family was a family, we used to trade funny stories and anecdotes, and that was just kind of how we bonded. Um, so that's kind of like where I've always been. And apologies if this is a, a mad question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Go where ahead. do you get your stories from? Where do you find them? But, and I guess for me, how also do you go about remembering them? Because that would be the thing that would really frighten me if I have some like real memory failure while I'm up there on stage. Well, the lovely thing about storytelling and memory failure is because I am not working with musicians who are waiting for a cue or any other performers who are waiting for a cue, if I have a memory failure, I have, I have to make the best of it as I can. Um, because, of course, you do get mistakes and glitches, but you just have to make that not apparent to the audience. Um, and it's a bit like playing jazz or improvised folk music. You play a wrong note, make sure the next note you play makes that note sound right. Has anything seriously gone wrong? Is, are, are there any occasions you look back on and think, oh my goodness? Yes, because with the pandemic, I get out of practice, because prior to the pandemic, I would be telling stories two or three times every week. Then after the pandemic, I started getting work, and I start realizing, oh no, I don't know this story as well as I thought I did. What a shame I'm already telling it to the audience. Um, and so yeah, you have to, there, there have been a couple of times where I had to actually stop and say, no, sorry, I've made a mistake. Normally, you can style your way out of it, but there have been a few when I couldn't. Then there was one occasion when my wife and I had moved house. It was winter. Somebody we knew at the time had some friends who lived in the area who invited us over for New Year's Eve. So we did. And you know how New Year's Eve makes quite a lot of use of liquid hospitality. Oh, I can't believe it. Ah, well, there you go, Tom. Just trust me, it does. <laughs> um, the next day I had to get up at 6 in the morning to get over to Kew Gardens where I was telling stories, starting early in the morning, and it's a long journey from East London. I arrived, and there was a man there who was there as elf to get the children in and out of Santa's Grotto where I was telling stories. Um, and I saw him, and he just looked at me and said, How are you feeling, Giles? He said, I just said, Oh, elf, you will pity me. He said, Are you hungover? And I said, Not yet. I was still drunk. Um, the first thing when I got up in the morning, I thought, Oh my God, I thought my multiple sclerosis was back. And then I was, No, I'm still drunk. 
I've got all that kind of impairment of motor function, but none of the giddiness and hilarity that goes with it. And so, yes, I had to tell stories that morning, still drunk. And there was one parent came up to me afterwards and said, yes, that story, the second story you told, I got a bit lost. I didn't quite understand the connection between dirt and dirt. And I said, <laughs> I said yes, I like to leave that ambivalence so the audience can, oh, my God. No, I just, that was very unprofessional, and I, I have never done that again. You always go sober. Yes, I never even have a drink beforehand. I never even have a glass of wine or half of it ale because. Nah, I've got to be at my sharpest. You've mentioned there your a couple of disabilities. There. I mean, mm. do you do you square with the audience straight away? Do you do you explain your visual impairment and, and your MS? I don't bother explaining the MS because that's not relevant. And I, the visual impairment by now, it's kind of usually goes into the marketing property because I am the only professional blind storyteller at present. I'd like to change that. I'd like to train. I'd like to see some younger people to see. I'd like some younger people to come through. And storytelling is something which blind people can do. Where I tend to get stories from is when I hear other people tell them. And then I find my own way of telling it. And when I've got several different sources, you combine or just get creative. Um, or I go to written sources, which is less easy for me. My most recent storytelling creation was working with an established writer who's, uh, well, I've got to say, I needed to adapt his established work, a play, into a one-man storytelling show. This is for a festival in Germany. And I've got to say, as a collaborator, I've... I couldn't have expected, I couldn't have hoped for a more willing collab. Anything I suggested, not a word of objection, no pushback at all. The story is called Macbeth, which possibly explains why there's been no pushback from the writer. He's been dead for 400 <laughs> years. Um, now that's one where by I've had to do an adaptation, and I do use parts of the original because the text is wonderful. Um, but there will be people in the audience who know that story very, very well. And there are bits when, oh, I should have brought this in, and there are things where I, I needed to have that. And you just have to, if you haven't remembered to put it in the right place, you have to find a, a funky way of bringing it in later. And you say something like, now, this would have been fine, but I didn't mention it. But it did, you know, so you kind of... You have rhetorical devices to get you talk your way out sometimes. Do you know what? I think one of the biggest and most useful lessons that I learnt in school and definitely university is the art of the blag. Um, I think that gets you through so many things in life. As if you can, it's because I teach as well. Teaching and performance. One of the greatest skills is that you make everything you do or say look like that's what that's exactly what you meant to do or say. I'll ask you about the teaching in a mo. I just want Hi. to continue with the uh, performing uh, aspect of, of your work. Do the audience react? Or, or maybe it's hard to put this question. Do, do you perceive that the audience reacts in, in a different way once they know you're visually impaired, or do they just treat you as yet another storyteller? I think they just treat me as a yet another storyteller. Actually, I think the most common reaction is that audience come up to me afterwards and say, are you really blind? Because my eyes track, my eyes focus on things. I can look in the direction where I know is a person. there is a person, 
And because of the way people perceive that, they will feel I'm making eye contact. I can't see their face. Um, but yes, people think I'm making eye contact with them, and all I'm doing is I'm letting my eye drift over different sections of the color field, which I know is the audience. And I let it hover here, and then I let it hover there, and hover there. And so people think I'm making eye contact. And um, in the true spirit of the Christmas podcast, we're going to dart all over the place because I know um, that you've thought about carrying a white cane in the past, and that was an issue. I used to carry a symbol cane because when I lost my sight, the very helpful people in Calderdale in... Uh I forget what they're called. West Yorkshire? No, I forget what the social worker is called, a, re, um, a visual rehabilitation officer. Um, they gave me a symbol cane and said, right, you should carry this now and carry it in front of you. And um, so I did. And it did make certain discussions quicker and easier, and it did make certain discussions unnecessary. But because I look so sighted, it also caused certain situations, as in, you're not blind. Taxes are pay. I'll piss in your eyes if you want, mate. You know, that kind of thing. And I've had it in London as well. Um, I've been back in London for 20 years now. Um, I, I, I decided to put the stick down, and peculiarly, my wife feels safer with me not carrying it now. Because she, I'm, she, I'm, I'm tall, my hair is bright orange, I have comedy facial hair, and so yeah, I'm visible, and so my wife feels that I'm less of a target now that I'm not carrying a, a, prov a stick which could be either a sign of vulnerability or taken as a provocation. You mentioned the provocation. What do you think society's attitudes are towards disabled people, visually impaired people right now? Do you think things have improved during your adult lifetime? There have been some practical improvements. So things like I can now read e-books on my smartphone. So the accessibility to text in alternative formats is colossally better than it was. When I did my master's in voice with a, with a support worker and with some... But it was very difficult. There are still many texts which I've never read because it's so hard to read them. And I also know of two blind students who took the course after me. One of them totally blind, which is very much harder than my level of visual impairment. She drops out. Another one nearly totally blind. Um, she completed the course but found the whole experience so traumatic she's never used it. That would have been easier for me. I think it would have been just as hard for the, the totally blind lady that I met. Um, but I think that would have improved. Other things which have improved, uh, sat-nav is a blessing. I can now go to places on my own for the first time and get there. And also things like talking buses and talking trains. That is a huge boost for me. We use many of the same methods, I think, don't we? We, we were both talking about Apple Maps and Google Maps and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, we got the bus from our previous engagement, let's put it like that, and we were both uh, uh, discussing how we know when to get off the bus. In London, you're very lucky with the announcement. Yeah, and also because I was, you know, I was about to say, oh, well, no, it's only a short walk. Um, and a lady, uh, we were in a hospital where I had an appointment, and um, a lady completely said, oh, no, it's quite a long walk, it's about half an hour. I said, really? See, this is my hometown. This is the interesting thing. Because it's my hometown, I used to come to this area a lot, but I've not been there for about 10 years, and my brain has just dumped the information it doesn't need anymore, and I'm losing... Uh, 
it's the vision impairment thing. My wife and I moved house yeah. 10 years ago to a new part of London. Within about two weeks, she knew her way around the area. It took me about 10 years. I've become lazy, I've got to confess, because Apple Maps and Google Maps kind of does it all for you. Yeah. Um, especially when I'm in a strange place. I just don't even bother learning anymore. I just put the Apple Maps on and away I go. Well, me too, but it means that I've now got great holes, which I, where I... I grew up in London, sighted, and I used to know this street and that street, and I used to know how to get from there to there. But now, nah, every street is a stranger, to be honest. Um, every street corner is a mystery, and these are places I used to know, and it does feel a bit humiliating sometimes, but ah, just deal with it. Don't I've known you for, it must be around 23, 24 years. Is, yeah. yeah, and I've only known the visually impaired Giles. Mm. What was the sighted Giles like? What were you like as a child? What kind of things did you do, apart from reading, of course? Oh, I read for England. I read and I read and I read and I read, and at school I was very good at the subjects I was interested in. I was very non-cooperative with the subjects I was not interested in. I do remember there was one teacher, a biology teacher called Mr. Orson, who put me into tension pretty much every week at least, if not more. And then when it came to the end of your examinations, he said, I shall now read out the end of your examinations. Abbott, 96%. And I thought, ha, I thought this was a real triumph of mine against him. What a fool. That was his achievement. The reason I got that good exam results is because he put me in detention every week. Um, funny how childish children are. Um, I was hopeless at chemistry, uh, but I cheated. But don't tell anyone. Oh, we wouldn't dream of doing that, Tom. <laughs> Thank God nobody listens to your podcast. Oh, so. I hope, hope oh. somebody listens. I hope uh, somebody exactly. Somebody will be, will um, be listening. But I hope Mr. Jennings, who was the, the, the chemistry teacher, maybe he may, he may have moved on, poor man. If he hasn't, then apologies. Um, I've actually been very lucky that I've been able to go back to school because I went back to my old school this time as a storyteller. I was very lucky because that was years ago. Some of the so some of the teachers who taught me were still enrolled. I was able to go to the staff room, as I had done many times before, and to knock on the door and say, yes, could I speak to Mr. So-and-so, as I had done many times before. But this time, it was when they came out, I said, yes, I, I wanted to say thank you. And they're like, oh, because, you know, with the distance of time, I've realized there were teachers who had profound impact on my life. But at the time, you, it's very us and them. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I've actually managed to find nearly all of the teachers who I now know made a profound impact on my life and say thank you. The only one I haven't been able to contact is Mr. Carroll, who taught me ancient history and it was my form teacher in the sixth form. Um, he's the only person I haven't been able to find and thank in person. Well, if he's listening. If he is listening, thank you, John Carroll. You were good. He was a brilliant teacher. What did you know about disability when you when you were fully sighted? Was it something that ever even entered your thoughts, or did you know something about it? No, very little. The only thing, I know my father had a young man called Yam, who worked, my, my father bought and sold paintings for a living. He was a picture dealer. And he had a young man called Jan, who was an, off, who was an artist, who was making a bit of money on the side, framing pictures. And my father really adored this young man, so he was charismatic, handsome, etc., etc. Um, and then one day my father came home and said this young man, who'd been off sick for a long time, had come back and he had this terrible wasting disorder called multiple sclerosis. And my father had seen it was awful, he was shaking, he could hardly stand up. That's all I knew about MS. Just little else at all. Yeah. And then I got it. And 
my father was actually able to contact Jan, and Jan was in a pretty good state. He had gone into remission, as indeed I have. Um, so I was able to learn that a diagnosis of MS does not necessarily mean you're going to be in a wheelchair straight away for the rest of your life. So the prognosis for you in the end was quite positive, or maybe the outcome, no, the, I say. No, the prognosis is still very negative, but so far... MS is a funny one. It's much harder on women than it is on men. That's just what you need, isn't it, girls? Um, but it is harder on women. Uh, testosterone seems to counteract some of the uh, some of the um, expression of MS, so to speak. So as soon as I could, I got to exercising, and I exercise regularly as hard as I can and do stuff which boosts blah 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 um, and I try and keep healthy Now we've talked about your storytelling but uh, since the pandemic in particular you've had to branch out you've had to expand, what have you been doing and how have you been expanding what you offer? Well it's not so much uh, I I was working as a voice teacher before the pandemic I did a master's in voice at Central School of Speech and Drama in 2004-05 and this was part of my plan because I figured I love storytelling but it's going to be very difficult to make a living from I need more I need to I need to distribute my options and so I trained as a voice teacher and I love it and when the pandemic hit storytelling I did some online storytelling but that was you know, I can't see or hear, or I, I have no sense of the audience at all when I'm telling stories online. I didn't like it, but did it when I had to. Voice teaching, I found that easier to make that work online. But then again, I was also working, at, and I was working in a really lovely school, schools, plural. And I've begun to find that work, the percentage of my income, which was dependent on voice teaching, moved during the pandemic from a proportion to the majority. And it is still the majority at the moment, but the storytelling is coming back. You mentioned a few moments ago that the uh, storytelling was maybe on the comeback. Uh, what, are, what are your plans in that regard? I hope it is. I'm, I was commissioned to create a one-man storytelling performance of Macbeth, which is currently on the GCC curriculum, so I'm hoping to find some work in schools. I did a job in a school in Sussex uh, a couple of weeks ago where I told Macbeth to... Uh, like the 11 to 16 year olds in this school and the teacher told me afterwards well she wrote to me afterwards saying that the, the, her, her students had said they wanted to see a particular Macbeth film and when they did they said my version of the, of the witches was better yes let's hear the witches very quickly when shall we three meet again in thunder lightning or in rain yeah, so it's kind of fun like that what I like about you is you're prepared to perform in the middle of a coffee shop oh straight in no shame no shame <laughs> listen I grew up with red hair you overcome that kind of thing as an early age um, so then there's yeah and then she said also they've, they've chosen they now want to study Macbeth um, so that works so I'm hoping I'll get some bookings for that in schools and in storytelling clubs because I originally created it for an adult audience um, then what else in storytelling well we just come through I've just been doing my Halloween stuff but I've already got bookings for next Halloween I, we're 
we'll, we'll see. I've got a fit. I've got a repertoire of lots and lots of different things, and hopefully, the live storytelling scene will come back because it's precious to me and to other people. But it's just, we'll see. Um, lots of people are coming in here after work now, so I'm, I'm guessing that that's a cue to begin to wind up. I uh, but think I, it is. But I do have to ask you about Christmas. Um, what are you and Sue's doing? How will you celebrate? Will you celebrate? Uh, well, yes, but in a very quiet way. Both of my parents have, they've gone, they've, both of my parents have passed on. Um, Susan's mother lives in Yorkshire and she spends it with her son up there. So no, it'll just be my wife and I. Nice, quiet and personal. Christmas dinner, will it be traditional? Luckily, my wife is a wonderful cook and I am her assistant. It won't be traditional, we'll just do what we want. And we're trying to decide. My wife's um, family background is Jamaican, so my wife is known from a child. When you want to cook something, you start two days before with the marinade. She's a wonderful cook. Um, and presents? I mean, presumably you'll exchange some gifts, will you, or not? Nah. You sound not as much as a Grinch as me. I'm doing a set of storytelling in a wonderful, peculiar museum in London this weekend. There may even be some tickets still available. It's called the Last Tuesday Society, and it's the Victor Wind, Wind spelt with a Y, Museum of Curiosities. It's a museum full of strange, ghoulish exhibits. It's a cocktail bar on top, and in the basement, this peculiar museum, and we gather around a table which has a glass lid under which you can see a human skeleton. And I'm telling a set of stories called Bar Humbug. It's Christmas stories for those who are running short of Christmas spirit. And they're proper Christmas stories, like the first adventure of Father Christmas, which involves robbery, murder, and prostitution. I mean, come on, it is Christmas. But it also is the story which explains why Father Christmas drops presents down the chimney. It genuinely does. And I've got some other Christmas stories in there about there's a young man who's about to have his Christmas Christmas dinner, and a stranger turns up and says, who will play a Christmas game with me? He's green, and he's carrying a massive axe, and the game is cut my head off, and next year, I'll return the favour. That's another genuine Christmas story. Come along, but they're not they're not twee. And then I've got another Christmas gig, which I think will have sold out, with a brass ensemble. They play Christmas music, and I, I tell a story in little minute-long sections between the pieces of music. Well, we're going to hear one of your stories as well. Do you know which one we're going to get? Uh, you mean from the website? Yes. Oh, that's a lovely story. My, over the pandemic, I turned my website into a shop with some recordings of stories on that people can buy. They're very cheap. It's like a price of a cup of coffee. And you Come get on, give us a web address. www.gilesabbott.com. Just remember, there's two B's and two T's. Dead easy. Dead easy. Um, and there's stories which you can purchase there, the audio only. And um, there's one which, if you rootle around, you'll find it's a story about. Um, oh, which one is it? I can't remember. There, I'm sure there's one. No, I, I'm getting muddled because of my age, Tom. I'm thinking of an Easter story, which I learned from a gypsy lady, which was lovely. But no, it's not that one. It might be the story of big cattle and small cattle. That one, it, maybe if it's not free, is well cheap. That's a beautiful Russian story. Um, well, if we can find it, I'll add this. I'll add that to the end of this podcast. And if 
I'll have a look around and I'll see if there's anything there that I can direct you towards. I love a bit of on-air production. <laughs> Great. A, a bit of me not knowing what the hell I'm talking about. That's, That's why I became a storyteller. Absolutely. Um, well, this really is a podcast. It's probably the most podcasty podcast I've done for quite a while. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to make it look as potty as possible. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Look, Giles, it's great to catch up. We've had an interesting day, one way or another. We are. Um, but uh, I think it's time for another coffee. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to see you again. Once again, thanks very much to Giles for his time and being so open and honest. So as promised, here's Lucy and the Angel by Giles Abbott. And after we've heard the story, I'll be playing The Vow's latest single, Nothing in This World. Lucy was in her bed, in her corner of the cottage. She was trying to keep warm underneath the rag of blanket, which even though Lucy was small was not quite big enough to cover all of her. She could have it up around her shoulders and her feet would get cold, or down by her feet and her neck would get cold. There was no night without some part of her getting cold, and especially not now that the winter was so intense. It was, in fact, the 24th of December, Christmas Eve. While Lucy's father had worked so hard that year, he'd worked every single job he could find, every single bit of work he could do, and he saved and he saved and he saved, and that's why this year, for Christmas, Miss Lucy and her father were going to have enough to eat. Lucy's father had managed to save enough to get some ham. Not the thick end of the leg, but just some bits that nobody else... But that was good for them. No presents. They never had the money for things like that. And Father Christmas never visited Miss Lucy. But for her, a warm fire and enough to eat would be present enough. She was just beginning to drift off when she heard the strangest noise. From outside, she heard, She knew that sound. But where? Because Miss Lucy and her father lived far away from anybody else. They lived near the forest where no decent people, nobody who could afford not to would live there. The forest was still dangerous. There was still big brown bear in the forest. There were still long grey wolves loping and slinking between the trees. And Miss Lucy heard a baby. Now she knew sound would be dulled, would be cloaked by the snow. She knew that already, that sound doesn't travel so well over snow. It must be not too far. There it was again. So she jumped out of bed and she ran over to where her father was sleeping to wake him up. And she couldn't. She shook him gently. She shook him violently. She pulled his hand. She, she even lifted up his eyelids and they slammed shut again, like the lid of a bin. Something strange was keeping her father fast asleep. So Miss Lucy, who was only seven years old, did a brave thing. She slipped her feet into her birch bark shoes. She grabbed her shawl and wrapped it tightly round her. She walked out into the night because she'd heard something else. The last time she'd heard that, she also heard, and she knew that wolves did not mean well to young defenseless children.
She walked and walked into the forest, and the crunch, crunch, crunch of the powder snow beneath. Thank God it was powder snow. That's easier to walk in. She walked, and now she was in the trees, and around her she could hear the of the trees creaking in the cold wind that came whistling between the trunks and between the twigs and the branches. That breeze which went cutting straight through Miss Lucy's shawl, through her skin to her bones. She was cold. But as she walked, she could hear that baby's voice getting nearer. And she could hear the wolves getting nearer to that baby. She was terrified. She ran and... Nothing. Nothing. No sound at all. No wolves, no... And then, really close to her, she span around, she looked, and there was the... Somebody had left a baby, a newly... I mean, a beautiful little baby at the bottom of a tree, and she could see no footprints in the snow. Whoever had left it there, they'd left it there before the last fall of snow, which was hours ago now. The poor thing must be freezing. Lucy picked it up. Now, it was only a small baby, but Lucy was only a small girl. It was quite a burden she had to carry, but she did, because behind she could hear, she could hear those wolves drawing closer, and so she picked up that baby, and as much as she could, she ran, she staggered, she hobbled, she... She made her way back to the cottage as fast as she could. She got inside and then thought, poor baby was so cold. She looked at all that wood that father had saved for their special Christmas fire and thought, this is more important. And she couldn't wake her father. She tried. And so she made the fire to make that baby warmer. And then that baby was crying and crying and crying and its mouth kept opening and she thought, it must be hungry. She had no milk, she had nothing to give, so she took a shaving of that ham, just the smallest slice, and the baby... And so she took shaving after shaving after shaving. Now babies eat a lot, they feed a lot, they've got a lot of growing to do, and Lucy was not an expert in babies, but this baby ate a prodigious amount of ham. And then there was no ham left, and all the fuel that her father had been saving was burning and burning and burning in the grate. But father would understand. Lucy was sure of that. But then something extraordinary happened. That baby, when the last piece of ham had been eaten, stood up. No, I mean it. That baby, which seemed like it couldn't walk, suddenly stood up on two feet. Those little legs straightened. That spine straightened. That head lifted and lifted and lifted. And that baby began to grow up, up, up. Now it looked like a seven-year-old child. Now 14. Now... Suddenly, Lucy saw... This baby transformed into a tall man. Only not a man. Because that man smiled, a dazzling smile, and then Lucy was even more dazzled by the huge white wings that unfolded from that man's back. Lucy knew this man was an angel. And he said to her, Miss Lucy, thank you for coming to rescue me. Nobody else would. Now, because of what you've done for me, I will do something for you. Is it true that Father Christmas has not visited you recently? And Miss Lucy confessed that Father Christmas had not visited her at all, ever, that she could remember. And the angel said, then come with me. And now he took Miss Lucy by the hand. And they walked out of that house into the snow and into a wide clearing in the forest when the angel pulled from his long coat a trumpet and he blew on that trumpet a long, long note. And then up in the sky, Lucy heard a sound of bells, sleigh bells ringing. 
and then she heard hoof fall, but up in the sky, and then she saw in the darkness something moving, something glinting, something twinkling, coming closer and closer, and then can you imagine her amazement? There was a sledge pulled by reindeer, and behind them, you know who was behind them, with his red nose, his white beard, his red clothes, his large belly, his red hooded top. It was Father Christmas himself, and the angel was giving Father Christmas a bit of a dressing down, saying, Now, Nick, do you recognize this place? I go to a lot. Have you, do you remember visiting here before? I go to a lot of places, as you know, and all in a very short. I put it to you, Nick, you have never visited this home. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's not really on my round. The angel insisted that it was. You've missed this house. You won't miss it again, will you? And Father Christmas shook his head and apologized and said he was overworked and he couldn't get the staff and it was the paper. But apologies were not accepted, not yet. The angel said, make it up to her. For this year and for all the years you've missed and make it up every year to come and I will accept your apology. And Father Christmas looked relieved because he's a kind person. He would never willingly miss somebody out. And so the angel and Father Christmas and Miss Lucy walked back into that little cottage. And Father Christmas pointed to the corner of the room, and kapow, there was a beautiful tree. He pointed at the fire, and kapow, there was a thick yule log that would burn all day, all night, and all of the next day and night, and in fact, most of the week to come. And then he pointed all around the room, kapow, there was beautiful presents wrapped, wrapped in the most bright paper, wrapped in sparkling tinsel, all around the bottom of that beautiful tree. Kapow again, that tree was hung with candles and decorations. Kapow, there was a huge turkey in the cold store. Kapow, there was a full ham roasted with honey and cloves. Kapow, there was a big keg of beer for father. Kapow, there were some sweet fruit truces for Lucy. And there, Miss Lucy's startled eyes could see, there was the best Christmas that she had ever experienced in her life. And Father Christmas was as good as his word. He came back every year after that. And I believe that Miss Lucy and her family have long since moved away from that forest. But if you know where to find it, if you can find that little hut, because it still exists, go inside. Nobody lives there now. They haven't for generations. But Father Christmas has kept his word. If you can find that hut, you will find decades worth of unopened Christmas presents. To help me tonight I'm a stranger I can't go talk in my mind In this place And I've nowhere to go But home And there is no one I know That wants to help me on But when you talk so deep And light Nothing. I was just losing my way. Hey. 